0: Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, You are faithful. Faithful to Your people, faithful to Your promises, faithful to Your purposes, faithful to Your own name and glory. We thank You that this is bound up in Your very character and You cannot change. Lord, we thank You for these words and this song. And we ask that for our own hearts, these sentiments would not change because of our circumstances. We pray that these lyrics would be ours as as long as we have breath, come what may. We ask as we look into your word this evening, the very place where these lyrics derive, that you would strengthen our own hearts to trust in you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations. And the song we just sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness, number 43 in the red hymnal I grew up with, comes from the text we're looking at this evening. In fact, it comes straight out of Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and following. The loving-kindnesses, plural, that's the Old Testament word for grace. The loving-kindnesses of Yahweh indeed never cease. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's what we just sung. Of course, when we read these words in the context of lamentations, we read them on the ash heap of a ruined city, the capital of a ruined and desolate and devastated nation. We read them in a the rubble pile of the consequences of sin, apostasy, spiritual adultery, idolatry, paganism, immorality, and rebellion. In the book of Lamentations, we pick up where Jeremiah left off. Bobby did such a great job for us last week, walking us through this extensive ministry of the prophet Jeremiah, who for 40 years prior to Israel's fall and 10 years after, preached God's faithfulness, To his own covenant promises. The book of Jeremiah was unheeded warning. And the book of Lamentations which follows is the fulfillment of the warning. It is a sad state of affairs. I have friends who have experienced the devastating effects of a house fire. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've known somebody who has sat in the rubble and the ashes of Dreams up in smoke, of memories melted, of aspirations gone. I don't know if you can imagine everything in your own personal residence going away in a flash. What would that feel like to sit in the rubble of all that you'd built? to, To think of that domicile, which was a protection and a stability, it was home for you to be gone, to be replaced only with sadness and sorrow and emptiness. That is the picture we have sitting in the ash heap in Jerusalem, or perhaps with Jeremiah on the hill overlooking Jerusalem, during... And after the siege and demolition of God's precious city. This is a sad book. Everything in ruins, dreams, plans, memories, all piles of rubble, piles of sorrow. And for Jeremiah, a very poignant sorrow as he saw it coming. And he invited the people of God for four decades to turn from their sin so that it would not come. And the patience of God ended in this disaster. The author of this book is the prophet Jeremiah. The the title, Lamentations, is just our English word in our English Bibles for, this is a bummer, (laughs) understated. This is a big, fat sorrow worth weeping over relentlessly. The first word of the book is the technical Hebrew title of the book, Echah. How? Alas! How did this come about? Or simply, some translations just have it, Ah! And from the very beginning of the book you feel the heartache of Jeremiah the author as he sits and looks on to this tragedy. The audience of the book of Lamentations is whoever will listen. Who's sitting on the hill with Jeremiah as he sings this dirge of the demise of his beloved city? The audience of this Lamentations is Jerusalem itself, the city and its inhabitants, whatever's left. At times, the audience of these lamentations is Yahweh. Sometimes, Jeremiah is pouring out his heart to God in lament and prayer. Sometimes, that lament is directed at Jerusalem. Significantly, the audience is us readers... We have Jeremiah's lamentations recorded for us, and, and we get to sit with him, as it were, looking on to this disaster. The context of this book is in and around 586 B.C. It is the fall of Jerusalem. It is the, the armies of Babylon having encroached closer and closer and closer to the capital city of the southern tribes, that which remained of Israel after the Assyrian captivity took the northern ten tribes away. And you remember that God saved Jerusalem from the Assyrians in Hezekiah's day. They were right on the doorstep. And God turned them around because there was something of a spiritual revival and a penitent king and the pleading with the Lord for mercy and a return to some level of fidelity. There were probably three revivals in Judah's history where they experienced something of a stay of execution. But here in 586 B.C., time has run out. Jerusalem is surrounded. There is a siege by the Babylonian armies. They have deported the nobles. They are oppressing the surrounding territories. The result of the siege is famine. People try to escape. They're caught by the swords in ambush. There is the oppression of the people to a slave populace. And then finally the walls come down. The city is burned and the people are left in the rubble. The structure of this book is a literary masterpiece. It is a series of five poems. Each chapter is a separate poem. And take out your Bibles, pick them up and and look at them. Just notice as we scan the book, chapter 1 has 22 verses. Chapter 2 has 22 verses. Do you see that? Chapter 3 has 66 verses, that's 3 times 22, in case you're doing the math. Chapter 4 has 22 verses, and chapter 5 has 22 verses. The structure is no accident, we, we know that the verse references were added later, they're not part of the original text. But in this book, the, the verse numbers very clearly align with the Hebrew poetry. There are 22 stanzas in the first poem, 22 in the second, 22 in the fourth, 22 in the fifth, and right there in the middle, three times 22 or 66. And more than that, how many of you have a legacy standard Bible you're looking at? Just hold it up with pride. Good job, legacy standard Bible. I haven't preached from one yet. This is my first foray into preaching from this Bible. I'll probably get lost a few times. That's okay. My plan is to finish reading it through a couple of times, and I will likely start preaching from the LSB. One of the things the Legacy Standard Bible does is it shows you acrostic poems. And an acrostic poem is a poem where the first line begins with a certain letter. Sometimes you can spell things with an acrostic poem. In school, I had to write an acrostic poem with all the letters of my name. I had to start each line with a different letter of my name, and it spelled out my name down the left side. The acrostic poems in the Bible follow the Hebrew alphabet. So in the first poem, you have 22 verses. There are 22 letters to the Hebrew alphabet. And so you have Bet, Gimel, Dalet, and if you remember your Hebrew alphabet, it goes all the way through. It's like the A to Z of the prayer lament of poem one. Poem two is mostly lament, and it is A to Z in Hebrew of lament in poem two. In poem four, you have lament again, A to Z. And in poem five, you have 22 verses. Again, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The last one's not an acrostic. It is arranged more thematically, but it is also uh, lament and prayer. So chapter 1, lament and prayer. Chapter 5, lament and prayer. Chapters 2 and 4, mostly lament. And then in chapter 3, right in the middle, not 22 verses, but 66 verses. And in Hebrew, every line of each of those stanzas in three verse segments begins with the same letter. So it is this magnified literary masterpiece drawing your attention to the themes. The effect of all of this is to recognize that Jeremiah's authorship of this book is not haphazard. It is very careful, even while it is very emotional. We're going to find a full range of awful and joyful and confident, hopeful and awful again emotions in this poem, set of poems. The effect of all of this is to draw our attention to the center. Chapter 3 is kind of the apex of the poem. It is where we got the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, right there in chapter 3. We've sung the apex of Lamentations already. And if you think of the book of Lamentations as something of a mountain... And you start over here in chapter 1 with lament and prayer, building in lament in chapter 2, and chapter 3 is the center or the apex. And and it will begin with lament, but center around recalibration, rethinking, retooling the mind. And then to descend down the mountain the other side, back into lament, into chapter 4, all lament, chapter 5, prayer and lament again. In this is a a series of, of speaker and audience. Sometimes Jeremiah is speaking to Jerusalem. Sometimes Jerusalem is speaking. Jeremiah is personified by the city and putting words in the city's mouth. Kind of saying what the city should be saying in this moment. Sometimes Jeremiah is speaking to the Lord. Sometimes Jerusalem is speaking to the Lord. You have these back and forth conversations, but... All of it is designed to draw us to the center. We'll come back to the center towards the end of our time this evening. What I want us to do in order to get a flavor of this book, and in order for us to sit with Jeremiah and feel the lament a little bit, we're going to scan Jerusalem's former glory days, days of privilege, days of honor, days of blessing, days of prosperity, from the details in the book of Lamentations. So follow along with me. Again, this is just a scan, but, but we want to rehearse the good old days. And I'm going to highlight from Lamentations the things that those in Jerusalem could look back on and say, remember how good it was? In the very first verse, look. How lonely sits the city that was great with people there was once great among the nations she who was a princess among the provinces this begins a rehearsal of how good it used to be in verse 1 full of people great among the nations a princess among lands in verse 2 full of lovers and friends in verse 4 of chapter 1 joyful feasts look down at verse 6 there was majesty and there were princes in verse 7, there were precious things. In verse 8, honor. In verse 10 of chapter 1, desirable things. In verse 15, mighty men. In chapter 2, verse 1, the city was a city of beauty. Even called the footstool of Yahweh. Honorable, unique position. And then in verse 2 of chapter 2, it had habitations, dwelling places, homes, and strongholds. And a kingdom and princes, nobility. In verse 3, strength and protection, divine protection against enemies. In verse 4 of chapter 2, beautiful people. In verse 5, palaces and strongholds. In verse 6, a tabernacle. That is a a meeting place for the God of the universe to actually dwell with His people. And festivals, when you see the phrase appointed times in the book of Lamentations. Normally in your Old Testament, appointed times refers to the the Sabbaths and the festivals and the celebrations. They were times of happiness and appointed feasts where all the people would gather together, rallying around Yahweh in covenant fidelity and celebrating with food and fellowship. And they had these festivals and Sabbaths, according to verse 6, kings and priests. They had those who would rule them, and they had those who would protect them with armies and provisions. And they had those who were intermediaries between them and God, offering sacrifices. Sacrifices for sin, sacrificial offerings of blessing, praise offerings... According to verse 7 of chapter 2, they had an altar and a sanctuary and walls and palaces. In verse 8, walls and ramparts. In verse 9, gates and bars, a king, princes. They had the law. In other words, they had the very oracles of God, God's own revelation to them. This is what set them apart from all the nations on the whole earth. And they had prophets. Those who would speak God's word to them. In chapter 2, verse 10, they had elders. Those are the the older wise guys in the city that would sit in the city gates and offer their wisdom and their judgment to those who would come by. In verse 15 of chapter 2, Jerusalem was said to be the perfection of beauty and the joy of the whole earth. In chapter 4, verse 1, they had gold, pure gold, and sacred stones. In verse 2, precious suns and fine gold. In verse 5, delicacies and crimson clothing. In verse 7, they had Nazarites, those who had set themselves apart through ritual purification for dedication solely to the Lord in a unique way. There was purity and there was vitality and physical health. They were called the anointed of Yahweh in verse 20 of chapter 4. According to verse 2 of chapter 5, they had inheritances and houses. That is not only dwelling places, but financial security enough to pass it along to the next generation. In verse 4, they had resources. In verse 11 of chapter 5, prized virgins. In verse 12, princes, again elders. In verse 13, they had young men, youth in their strength. In verse 14, elders in the gate and youths making music. In verse 15, joy and dancing. And in verse 16, a crown. And an emblem of nobility and dignity and all things going well. That was Jerusalem's former privilege and glory, all highlighted here in Jeremiah's Lamentation. Now let's scan the book for Jerusalem's current disaster and dismay and And all of these things are said in in Hebrew poetry, a, a contrast to the former things. In fact, throughout the book, the back and forth. This is what we had, now look at it. Listen to this list of their disaster. The loneliness of a widow and the hardship of slave labor. First verse. Second verse, bitter weeping, tears, no comfort, treacherous friends and surrounded by enemies. Third verse, exile, affliction, great slavery, and no rest. Fourth verse, mourning, desolation, sighing, grieving, and bitterness. Fifth verse, adversaries and captivity. Verse 6, no pasture, fleeing, no strength. Verse 7, afflicted, homeless, helpless, and ruined. Verse 8, impure, despised, Naked, sighing, shamed. In verse 9, astonishing decline. No comfort, affliction, and enemies. In verse 10, adversaries stealing their stuff. Pagans in the sanctuary. In verse 11, sighing, hunger, being despised. In verse 12, pain and grief. In verse 13, fire, traps, blockades, and fainting. In verse 14, the failure of strength and being given over to enemies. In verse 15, still in chapter 1, appointed times and festivals are now the appointed times where their enemies get to celebrate their demise. The parties are against her, strong men broken and trodden. In verse 16, weeping, desolate children, prevailing enemies. In verse 17, no comfort. Impurities galore. In verse 18, pain, captivity. In verse 19, priests and elders dead. In verse 20, distressed, disturbed, heartbroken, bereaved. Death in the streets and death in the homes. In verse 21, sighing. No comfort. In verse 22, great groaning and faint hearts. That's A to Z of the suffering in Jerusalem in the first lament. The first poem. Chapter 2, verse 1. The anger of God and great downfall. Verse 2, houses destroyed, strongholds demolished, royalty defiled. Verse 3, strength cut down, divine protection removed, and the city burned. Verse 4, the people targeted and the beautiful killed. Verse 5, devastation, ruin, mourning, and moaning. Verse 6, violence, the temple destroyed, festivals and Sabbaths altogether forgotten, kings and priests removed. And you remember the scene so vivid. Bobby brought this out last week, the, the, the ending of the reign of Zedekiah. Do you remember? He doesn't trust the Lord. He doesn't listen to the prophet Jeremiah, who, who promised the people, look, you're going into exile. God's prepared a place in Babylon. You'll go there, pray for that nation. You'll be well protected. You'll have homes and vineyards. And then I'll bring you back after 70 years. Just trust me, says Yahweh. Zedekiah says, forget you, Jeremiah. He stiff arms the Lord, runs out the back door with a a band of brigands. They get caught. And what was the punishment? The last thing Zedekiah saw was Nebuchadnezzar slaughtering his sons before his eyes, and then his eyes plucked out. And he spent the rest of his life in captivity with the memory of the death of his own children, the end of his line. He could have trusted the Lord. Kings and priests removed. That's understated in verse 6. In verse 7, a rejected altar, abandoned sanctuary, and overrun palaces. In verse 8, ruin, mourning, and languishing. In verse 9, sunken gates, broken bars, exiled nobility. God's law absent and God's prophets absent. The voice of God is gone, unheard. In verse 10, shamed and silent elders No longer in the gates giving wisdom to the people. In verse 11, destruction. And this hurts just to read. Babies fainting. In verse 12, babies starving and dying. Listen, babies get what they want. Because parents... It's so bad in Jerusalem that the babies get no help. Verse 13, vast destruction. Verse 15 of chapter 2, mockery and trash talking from enemies. Verse 16, enemies taunting. Verse 17, enemies rejoicing. Verse 18, constant tears with no relief. Verse 19, starvation. Verse 20, I I can't read the verse. Maternal cannibalism. In verse 21, the inhabitants killed by the sword, slaughtered without mercy. And this goes without saying, verse 22, terror. That's the A to Z of the second poem of the lament of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. In Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah and Jerusalem imagery overlap. Jeremiah is speaking, but it, he, he's using imagery from the city. He talks about his own broken bones. I think he's talking about the broken down walls of the city. It's like he can't remove himself from Jerusalem. He is personifying the city. And you see on the voice of Jeremiah, the, the voice that should have been of Jerusalem of trust in Yahweh, of repentance, of sorrow over sin. Jeremiah is putting words in their mouth. Listen to Jeremiah describing his own suffering in his affinities with the city. Some of it was very personal, some of it was personification. In verse 1 of chapter 3, affliction and divine wrath. Verse 2, darkness. Verse 3, God's hand against them. Verse 4, bodies wasting away and broken bones. Probably the broken walls of the city. Verse 5, the siege and the bitterness of gall and hardship. And verse 6, darkness. And verse 7, being trapped and burdened with heavy chains. Verse 8, the feeling that prayers go unheard. Just divine abandonment and judicial hardening. We, we, we think we're going to speak to God and the prayers hit the ceiling. Blocked and crooked paths in verse 9. Ambushes and attacks from the enemy in verse 10. Being torn to pieces and desolate, verse 11. Verse 12. Targeted for attack. Verse 14. Mocked. Verse 15. Bitterness and wormwood. Broken teeth cowering in the dust in verse 16. No peace, forgotten goodness in verse 17. All strength gone and all hope gone in verse 18. Afflicted and homeless in verse 19. Unceasing tears in verses 48 and 49. Hunted, silenced, and cut off in 52 to 54. Oppressed and mocked by enemies for the remainder of the chapter. That's the A-A-A to Z-Z-Z of the third poem of Jeremiah's Lamentation. Here's the fourth Valuables lost and worthless, verse 1. Sons despised, verse 2. The compassionate made cruel. That's an interesting judgment. The best and best-hearted of people, cruel. Thirsting and starving infants, in verse 4. Desolation and pits of ash, in verse 5. In verse 8, the physical degradation of the people, such that they are unrecognizable, their skin withered, tough like wood, and discolored like soot. The people are hungry. Life ebbs away. They are stricken, in verse 9. And again, verse 10 is just unreadable. Verse 11, the city is burned, the foundations demolished. Priests and prophets wandering, blind and defiled. Verse 14. Verse 18. Hunted with no safe place to go. The end is near. The days are finished. Verse 19. Pursued and ambushed. A to Z of poem 4 of Jeremiah's lament. Here's the last poem. Not an alphabetical acrostic, but still 22 verses Matching the pattern of the rest. Verse 1, reproach. Verse 2, inheritances and houses lost to brigands and pirates, invaders. Verse 3, orphaned and widowed. Verse 4, the extortion for their own resources. They used to just get the wood and the water from around them. Now they have to buy it at exorbitant costs from others. Verse 5, the people are pursued, worn out with no rest, always in mortal danger, verse 9, with skin like an oven, verse 10, and famine. In verse 11, their virgins are violated. In verse 12, princes executed by being hung by their hands in public and the elders despised. In verse 13, the youth are put to forced labor like beasts of burden. They are now doing what animals would do. In verse 14, the wisdom in the gate and the music in the streets are gone. Joylessness and mourning. Verse 15. Faint hearts, dimmed eyes, desolation, overrun by wild animals. Verses 17 and 18. Verses 20 to 22. What are we? Forgotten? Forsaken? Utterly rejected? The book ends with a question mark. Few have experienced such total loss and devastation, hardship on every side, and the end of all hope. Let's examine through the Book of Lamentations the cause of this disaster. Let's do a post mortem examination, something of an autopsy. What happened here? Where did things go wrong? How did the glorious city of Jerusalem, gold gleaming on the top of the hill for all to see, get to an ash heap of rubble and despair? The one cause would just be the tides of empires, the whims of geopolitics. This, this is the way the world goes nothing lasts, dynasties crumble. Right? The, the Patriots don't win all the time. The Lakers. Nobody even remembers the Cowboys dynasties. I do. Powerful families go away. They can run things for a while, but, but then they slip up. They get reckless and careless and arrogant and, and family dynasties decline. The, the TV show dynasty is no more. Nobody remembers that. That's good. Is this just the decline of the Davidic dynasty? This was the decline of the Assyrian Empire. They couldn't stave off the rise of the Babylonians in the south. They waned. Egypt was relatively weak at this point and really couldn't be an international player. And so the Babylonians rose. That empire was on the ascendancy. And surrounding Israel, you had the hostility of neutrality, right? Those are the nations around Israel that said, hey, we don't want to get in trouble with Babylon, so we're not going to come to your aid. And they became hostile nations against Israel because they wouldn't ally themselves to defend Israel. Egypt, Tyre, Sidon, the nations of the Transjordan, those nations across the Jordan River from Israel, they all sat this one out. As Babylon encroached. So 586 BC, the Babylonian army surrounded Jerusalem. They laid siege. They killed the nobles. They killed Zedekiah, or they captured Zedekiah, killed his children. And you just say, well, all's fair in love and war. Come see, come saw. You win some, you lose some. You know, the good days just can't last forever. All good things must come to an end. This is just the way of the world. And we say Israel's golden era is in the rear view mirror. At a human level, these are the geopolitical features or or causes of the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not the first city laid siege to. They're they're not the first place to be surrounded by an army and be starved out. This has happened in warfare throughout world history. Is, Is geopolitics the only cause of this demise? Of course not. We read in the book of Lamentations that In addition to the tides of empires, the the cause of this demise is Jerusalem's sin. Look in chapter 1. Jeremiah knows this. He's been warning of this for 40 years. And as he laments the city, this is not a I told you so moment. Jeremiah is weeping, but he recognizes the cause. Verse 5, because of the greatness of her transgressions. Verse 8 of chapter 1, Jerusalem sinned greatly, therefore she's become an impure thing. Verse 9, her uncleanness was in her skirts. And notice the second phrase of verse 9, she did not remember her future. Do you ever talk like that? Oh, I remember the future. That's a weird thing to say. What is the sin here? This is going to lead us to a significant detail. Her sin was covenant infidelity. God made a unique covenant with this nation. Promises for blessing, for obedience, and cursing for disobedience. And what God says will happen will happen because, spoiler alert, he is faithful. When Jeremiah says she did not remember her future... He just means she sinned in not trusting God and His word. This is the consequence. Verse 18 of chapter 1. I have rebelled against His command. This is Jeremiah putting words in Jerusalem's mouth. Verse 20. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. Verse 22. My groans are great. My heart is faint for all my transgressions. Look at chapter 2 and verse 14. Here's more sin. Your prophets have beheld for you worthless and ineffective visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity so as to return you from captivity, but they have beheld for you worthless and misleading oracles. Significant sin in Jerusalem's history is ear-tickling prophets. Told him a happy message. It's going to be fine with you. Peace, peace. God said, There's no peace. You're in rebellion against me, and your prophet, your so called prophets, who are not speaking for me, are not exposing your sin so that you could repent and avoid the calamity. Your sins brought you here. Sins of the priest and prophet, and sins of the audience of the priest and prophet. Chapter 3, verse 22. We're going to skip that one for a moment. I don't know why I have that in there. Chapter 4, verse 6. So the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom. That's a heavy statement. You remember what happened to Sodom. All in one moment. Fire from heaven eliminated the city and its inhabitants altogether. God's assessment of Israel is, you're worse than that. It's heavy. Verse 13. Because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in her midst the blood of the righteous. Chapter 5, verse 7. Our fathers sinned. They are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities. There is a generational feature here. The consequences of father's sins came down to another generation. And if you think for a second, oh, well, that's not fair. I mean, the the second generation was innocent and they're being punished. No, the second generation wasn't innocent. One of the consequences of the father's sins is they laid a pattern for another generation and that second generation stayed in the same sins. Look down in verse 16. Woe to us for we have sinned. That's the bottom line. This calamity has come on Jerusalem because of Jerusalem's sin. And the sin, fundamentally, is one of covenant infidelity. Back to chapter 2 and verse 20. The unreadable portion of verse 20 is a fulfillment of Leviticus 26.29 and Deuteronomy 28.53 which are also unreadable which predicted this very thing. Deuteronomy 28 is interesting because this is before they went into the land. Deuteronomy is their constitutional document. Deuteronomy is the last sermon Moses preached across the river before they went into the land. And Moses said... Listen to Yahweh and keep His word and trust Him and love Him with all your heart. And if you do, the land of milk and honey will be a blessing to you. Your enemies will turn tail. In fact, the whole world will say, look how great Israel is and we want to know their God. And if you don't listen, if you disobey, then your enemies will be multiplied. And all these curses will be upon you. Including the ones we read about right here in Lamentations 2.20. God is faithful. He keeps His promises for blessing and for judgment. This is what they face. They have violated the covenant. They have rejected prophetic warning. And they failed to learn by history and by example. Their their sister tribes, the northern ten, were already hauled off into Assyrian captivity. That should have been a wake-up call. They didn't wake up. There's a third cause in this post-mortem. And it is Yahweh's hand of judgment. We see this very clearly What caused the disaster in Jerusalem? Was it the geopolitics? Yeah. Was it the sin of Jerusalem itself? Yes. And thirdly, it was Yahweh's hand. Very clearly. Chapter 1, verse 21. You have brought the day which you proclaimed, Jeremiah laments. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, every single verse indicates Yahweh's causation. Yahweh swallowed up. In hot anger, He cut us in pieces. He bent His bow. He became like an enemy. He violently treated His tabernacle like a garden shack, a temporary building that didn't matter. He rejected His altar. He determined to bring to ruin. Yahweh did these things. In chapter 2, verse 12 Again, this is Yahweh's doing. I think I have the wrong reference there. I'm lost. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. Yahweh has done what he purposed. He has completed his word which he commanded from days of old. And in chapter 2:20 through 3:16, every single verse likewise indicates God's causation. Turn with me for a moment back to Deuteronomy twenty eight and look at verse sixty three. Here's the promise from Moses. Long before they even entered into the land, it will be that as Yahweh delighted over you to prosper you and to multiply you, so Yahweh will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess. This is Yahweh's doing. Let's talk for a moment about suffering and correlation. The theme of the book of Job is sometimes there's suffering with no correlation. Job was a sinner, but but in the matter of his suffering, he was innocent. There was not a one-to-one correspondence between why Job was suffering and any particular sin he'd committed. Lamentations is different. Here there is correlation. There is a relationship between what Israel did, what Judah and Jerusalem did in their sins, and the consequences from God for those sins. And it's not strictly a cause and effect relationship. It's not a reaping everything you've sown. Of course, the reaping and sowing is there, but... Think about this, with with Judah and Jerusalem, mercy was repeatedly offered so that they might not receive all that they deserved. How many generations went by in apostasy and idolatry and in wickedness and immorality and sin and rebellion against God where they did not get destroyed? Again and again and again, God was merciful and compassionate and allowing time for repentance. Repentance. So it's not a strict one-for-one correspondence here. Think about your own life. How much sin and how much mercy. How much patience from the Lord. When you think about the consequences, where there is correlation between your sin and its consequences, are you getting everything that you deserved? Of course not. We see the kindness of God even in this. The correlation between Judah's sin and their suffering in Lamentations relates to the covenant relationship the nation had with Yahweh. They were a unique nation with incomparable privilege. God dwelt among them. God gave them His very words. Lamentations exists because Israel's covenant violations and because of Yahweh's covenant faithfulness. Do you understand? Israel failed to keep the promises and God did not fail to keep His God is faithful both ways to bless for obedience and to curse for disobedience. And staggeringly, to bless in defiance of disobediences. You see, the book of Deuteronomy doesn't end with blessings for obediences and cursings for disobedience. Chapter 30 follows 28 and 29 of Deuteronomy. In chapter 30 verse 6, God promises you will obey me and you will obey me from the heart with full-fledged love for me as a nation when I circumcise your hearts. In other words, God's going to make Israel as a nation keep covenant faithfulness. It's a supernatural work. We talked about it this morning when Messiah comes back and fulfills Ezekiel 36 and 37 by the power of the Spirit and the nation of Israel embraces Yahweh with love. It's coming. Staggering mercy of God in this. I want you to see very briefly some echoes of Psalm 23. You know the shepherd's psalm. You trust in Yahweh, He leads you to rest and good pastures. He'll... Protect you. He'll provide a table for you in the presence of your enemies. Amazing promises. Chapter one, verse three. She sits among the nations, but she has no rest. It's the opposite of twenty-third Psalm. Look at verse sixteen. Far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. You hear Psalm 23 in there. The good shepherd restores the soul. It also reminds us of Psalm 19:7. That is what the word of God does in all of its perfect beauty. It restores the soul. Look down at verse 19. My priests and my elders breed their last in the city while they sought food for themselves in order to restore their souls. Here they are looking for material things to try to do what the shepherd The Good Shepherd and his good word would provide restoration of soul. Look at chapter 3 and verse 17. My soul has been rejected from peace, I have forgotten goodness. (laughs) The Good Shepherd provides those things. Look at verse 22. The loving kindnesses of Yahweh indeed never cease. Remember Psalm 23? Same word, chesed. Surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me. It's an intensive. Shall pursue me, chase me down all the days of my life. What is the message here? Uh, A faith in Yahweh, covenant faithfulness to Him, belief in His Word, relying on His good and perfect Word, Psalm 19, and trusting in the Good Shepherd, Psalm 23, would result in good pasture, protection from enemies, peace, loving kindness, or the grace of God, and rest. These are all the things... They're missing in their disaster. And rather than covenant faithfulness to God, they chose idolatry, immorality, self-sufficiency. They said, I want my sin and I will build protections around it. Listen, they wanted political alliances. Why? So they could be safe in the promised land of God and worship Him without disturbance. What, were they looking for? Freedom of religious expression. By political means, military ends. No, they, they wanted military alliances to protect them from some enemy so they could actually carry on with their rebellion. What were they trying to, re- to protect? Their sin. They wanted walls around their sin, they wanted protections for their rebellions. How backwards were their thoughts? They thought their political alliances might protect them. Chapter one, verse nineteen. They thought their happy message prophets might give them good news. Chapter two, verse fourteen. They thought their resources, their riches, could buy them help. Chapter four, verses one to five. And they thought the nations had what they wanted. Look, look back at chapter one and verse three. She sits among the nations. What incredible irony! Israel, in her rebellious idolatry, went after the nations and what they had. Yeah, we like their gods. You want the nations? You can have the nations. The nations are going to pour in here and defile the sanctuary, and I'm going to throw you out. Again, one of the most terrifying judgments of God is getting exactly what you want. If what you want is godlessness, that was the judgment. Let's talk about the central theme, the apex of the book. I'm going to read. You should read verses 20 to 42. I'll summarize it for you. It is a recalibration. Right theology, focusing our hearts on Yahweh, confession of sin. All of it is a retooling of the way they needed to be thinking the center of the center, that, that, that uh, chapter 3, verse 20 to 42, is the mathematical center of the whole book. The center of the center, mathematically, according to the meter of the poetry, is verses 31 to 36. And it centers on the plan and the character of God. I will read this. For the Lord will not reject forever... For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his legal case. These things the Lord does not see, or he does not do, or he does not approve. That is the center. It's built on the plan and the character of God, a plan to restore Israel, a plan for compassion for Israel rooted in God's very nature. And then the center of the center of the center, the, the mathematical apex of the whole book, verses 33 and 34, he does not afflict literally from his heart. I think the New American Standard says he does not afflict willingly. He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet the prisoners of the land. What is the center of the center of the center of this book? What is its message? It is not the character of God to afflict for affliction's sake. He doesn't do it. There are biblical categories for affliction. I'll I'll rattle off a few for you. Discipline for his true children. It's one of the ways you know you're a true child of God, Hebrews 12. Correction to a nation, Jeremiah 30, the troubling of Jacob will bring about her purity. The right perspective to all of humanity, Ecclesiastes 7. Sometimes we just suffer because we're in a bent universe and we are sinners. And then there is God's affliction that comes as justice to the unrepentant. Even that is not affliction for affliction's sake. It is just right for God to afflict the unrepentant. Look at the last stanza of the book, chapter 5, verse 21. Listen to this plea from Jeremiah that should be on the lips of apostate Israel. Cause us to return to you, verse 21, O Yahweh, that we may be returned. Give us our gold back. Give us our homes and our buildings. Let us have food. The focus here of this prayer, restoration begins with a restoration from the heart to God himself. We need to think a little beyond a mere historical event. The fulfillment of the prophecies of Jeremiah in the Lamentations of Jeremiah. I want us to consider for a moment the Lamentations as a national illustration of personal sin. At an individual level, just take what we've talked about tonight and make the associations to your own heart. Have you built walls of protection around your sin? Do you hope that your circumstances will let you go on in sin without getting your heart right before the Lord? Have you looked for circumstantial alliances? Maybe your material resources. Have you neglected the Word of God and the God of the Word and thereby missed the restoration of soul found in God's Word and peace and green pastures at the hand of a good shepherd? Listen, it's appropriate if things in life are upside down and backwards and tumultuous and difficult to ask, am I on track spiritually? Sometimes there's correlation, sometimes there's not. It's good to ask. Someone said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. I found that quote attributed to about 12 different pastors, so I don't actually know to whom it belongs. But do you remember the sentiment? They did not remember their future. Do you look forward in temptation to what sin will cost it's always more than you bargain for. It's always farther than you planned. And I think we need to consider Lamentations um, as an illustration, a, a regional historical illustration of what will be an eschatological universal catastrophe. Listen, the end is coming for the whole world. God is going to lay siege against the entire populace of the human race. And people will be wiped off the face of the earth left and right in great swaths of judgment. Do you remember when Jesus said in Matthew 24, the, the, all of that discourse? That is a period of human history that has never been paralleled before, nor will there ever be afterwards. In fact, if it hadn't been shortened to a seven-year span, nobody would survive. Jesus said the love of many will wax cold. You think about this scene, I think we can make the associations here, but when the most delicate, when the most refined, the most noble, the well-dressed sit in their filth and then out of desperation for animalian survival resort to cannibalism. It doesn't get worse than that. And that will be global. Listen, it it's comfortable right now for us, relatively speaking, C- compared to this disaster, compared to Matthew twenty four, twenty five, the disaster that's coming on the whole earth. In fact, we may get tired of reading about it, studying it for months in Revelation six through eighteen. <laughs> it's a lot of chapters devoted to that awful, awful time period that's coming. If you are sitting in your comfort now, having built a fortress around your own godless life, the walls will come down. The city will be burned. You will be left in the ash heap of ruin of all you have made for yourself. Listen, friend, you need the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to turn to God in faith. There is hope, there is rescue. There is restoration with the Lord, we come back to the song. To this I will return my heart; therefore I will wait in hope. The loving-kindnesses of Yahweh indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I wait for Him. Yahweh is good to those who hope in Him, to the soul who seeks Him. Wait patiently, silently, for the salvation of Yahweh. That's what we must sing. When you sing the song... No doubt you will forever sit on the hill looking at the destruction of Jerusalem. You just can't get it out of your eyes. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this book. It's a difficult read, difficult meditation, hard to ponder. And yet it is your word. You have recorded it for us, for our benefit. May we learn and heed. And oh God, even as we close this evening, we would climb the mountain to the middle of the book, to that apex, to those great themes of who you are in your character and your purposes that will never fail. And we cling to your loving kindness. We put our hope in your faithfulness. We trust in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Is it possible to put the lyrics back up again? And we'll close with the song. Um, You can just be dismissed when the song's over.